Welcome to Purdue Commercial Agcast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Mintert, director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today are Brady Brewer, who's an associate professor of ag economics here at Purdue, along with Michael Langemeyer, who's also a professor of ag economics at Purdue. We're going to discuss the drivers of inflation in the U.S. economy and what that might mean for interest rates and a little bit about the ag economy itself in terms of the overall impact. So, um, Michael, you've taken a look at this, and I think it's a good time to maybe just think about some definitions, because that's always a little bit of a challenge. I think when I read the popular press, a lot of times I see some confusion about what inflation really is. There's a lot of confusion. A lot of confusion regarding inflation. Uh, looking at a textbook definition, uh, inflation represents the decline in purchasing power of a currency over time. Uh, also, let's talk a little bit about quantitative estimates. Uh, there are several quantitative estimates of the rate of inflation. This also does create some confusion. Uh, these are typically made by examining the increase or decrease in the price levels of a basket of selected goods. That's very important. That last part of that the, the last last part of that sentence. It's a basket of selected goods. So we're not just looking at oil prices. We're not just looking at food prices. If you're looking at consumer price index, for example, you're looking at a basket of, of items that consumers would purchase. Uh, also, uh, it's important to note, to note that most economists would agree that an increase in the supply of money is the root cause of inflation. Uh, many of us were told that uh, inflation is a monetary phenomenon. Yeah, I think that's uh, paraphrasing a rather famous quote from Milton Friedman. I think uh, Milton said something along the lines of uh, inflation everywhere and always is a monetary phenomenon, as I recall. So uh, we'll talk more about that in, in some detail here. Um, you know, Brady, I think the reason we're doing this podcast is the fact that there's been a big shift in at least one of the measures of inflation, namely the consumer price index. Yeah. So as Michael said, uh, we measure inflation through, you know, looking at what it costs for a basket of goods. And there's very di uh, different baskets we can use to measure that. One of the most common, uh, which is published by the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics, uh, they really released two uh, main CPI indices, one that has all items and then one where they actually exclude um, food and um, you know agricultural products as well as energy products and the all item category uh, they just the most recent numbers just went right over 8.5 percent uh, and this has been a sharp increase over the last 12 months uh, April of 2021 it was under two percent and you know this is what is causing a lot of the worry about the inflation is this sharp increase over the last 12 months and Namely, if you look over the history of what uh, inflation has traditionally been measured uh, by, uh, the Federal Reserve typically has set a goal of about 2% inflation. And some economists, you know, made made some comments about this seemed more like a ceiling than a goal of what they wanted inflation to be. Well, obviously, we have uh, gone through that ceiling uh, almost four times over that ceiling here over the past year. Historically, though, you know, I do want to mention uh, this 8.51% of the most recent Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, CPI indices. Uh, while it is high, it's not the highest we've ever seen. If you look back to the 1970s and 1980s, we did have inflation above 10%, um, you know, back, back in that time period. 
And of course, that's what people are worried about, right? Is the, is the possibility that we might see a reoccurrence of those high rates of inflation. That's really what stimulated so much of the discussion here the last few weeks and last few months. Absolutely. No one wants to go back to that uh, over 10% inflation. So, Brady, just for clarity, when you say 8.5% inflation, is that compared to a year earlier? Is it a 12-month change? Is that what we're talking about? Yes. So their their baskets are all looking at. So you can interpret that as the most uh, recent data was from March of 2022. Uh, you can interpret that as that basket of goods was 8.5% higher than it was in, in March of 2021. All right. So let's talk a little bit about measures of inflation versus inflation itself. So Michael, you mentioned inflation is a decline in the purchasing power of, of a, a currency. Another way to think of that is to say it's a change in the price level of the entire economy, right? Of all the goods and services in the economy. The challenge, of course, is there's no way to measure all the goods and services, the prices of all the goods and services in the economy. So what we have are a lot of different measures of inflation, which are simply proxies for inf the true underlying inflation rate. And it's difficult to do a good job, right? So the one that Brady was talking about, the CPI, as he mentioned, is published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, that's based on approximately 80,000 products. So it's a big, a big bunch of things, a big, uh, a big basket, if you will. Um, and they update that periodically, I think every couple of years or so. But uh, it's, it's kind of renowned for being a little bit rigid in terms of the updates. The largest product categories in the CPI uh, are, uh, first of all, housing at 32% of the index, food at 14%, and then transport commodities such as cars, um, 8%. And then after that, you get a lot of smaller items in there. But one of the challenges with the CPI is it suffers from something that I think consumers should be very familiar with, and that is substitution bias. As prices of individual items change, you don't automatically continue to buy the same things over and over just because you have the habit of doing that. As those relative prices change, people start to substitute and make changes in their purchasing habits. And that substitution bias, which is the failure to account for the fact that people change what they buy over time, um, often causes the CPI to overstate the inflation rates. That's always been kind of a long-term controversy with respect to, to measuring inflation. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the substitute measures or alternative measures of inflation that people use to maybe try and get a better grip on the underlying core rate. Um, so there's the chained index, which comes in at essentially kind of a smoothing process. Uh, I think the most recent observation of that one, instead of 8.5, Brady, was I think 8.1%. Um, the chain PCE, chain personal consumption expenditure index, I think it came in at 6.7% most recently. And then the one that's probably uh, maybe used more by economists, not so much by the general population or the business press, is uh, uh, one of the measures of core inflation, which is called the trimmed mean PCE. Um, that's a measure invented uh, a few years ago, I think, by the Dallas Fed, uh, Federal Reserve Bank economist. Um, and it's an attempt to measure the underlying rate of inflation and maybe to uh, stay away from or avoid uh, some impact from shifting supply-demand fundamentals, which uh, can influence these measures of inflation. I think the most recent measure of it through February was just up 3.6%. So what, what's your take on that, Michael? You were talking about the fact that there's this difference between uh, changing fundamentals, 
shifts in true supply-demand curves, for example, for individual items versus this inflationary impact? How do you how do you kind of view those? Well, I can tell you a little bit on which one I, I tend to use. I tend to use the implicit price deflators, which does not suffer as much from the bias as, as, as the CPI, but it specifically, I like to use the uh, implicit price deflator related to personal consumption expenditures. And the reason why I do that is we're all consumers. And so even, even if we're producing a product like a farm, we're still consumers. And so we take everything back to the consumer level. And so that seems to me makes sense as, as a good way to measure inflation. But but having said that, the inflation indices are very correlated. Uh, yes, they are a little bit different in, in, in the magnitudes, but they're very correlated over time. And so if you're tracking inflation over time, uh, you're really getting a similar picture regardless of the measure you use. Let's talk a little bit about inflation mechanisms. And this is straight from a, from a textbook, uh, a macroeconomic textbook that would be talking about inflation. Uh, economists uh, you typically say there's three different types of inflation, uh, demand pull inflation, cost push inflation, built-in inflation. So let's talk a little bit about these in turn and then talk about uh, which one of these are, are probably more important than the other ones. And so when you look at demand pull inflation, uh, you're really talking about uh, it, have we increased the money supply to such a degree that the demand for goods is higher than the productive capacity of an economy. And so for example, if we have a large stimulus and, and so there's a lot of money out, out in the economy, perhaps we've put more money out in the economy uh, than our increase of productive capacity uh, during a period of time. That's going to result in what we call demand-pull inflation, and it's certainly uh, pertinent uh, to the recent surge in, of inflation. Another uh, type of inflation, which I don't think is quite as, as pertinent as demand-pull inflation, is what they call cost-push inflation. This is when production costs increase prices. Uh, I think the, uh, the way I think about this is not so much that that uh, that firms use uh, increase in production costs and uh, to to uh, to raise prices. That's not how I think about cost push inflation. I think I think about technological changes. For example, if we have technological changes, that actually actually results in deflation or a reduction in inflation. So that's how I think about cost push inflation. Also, as you improve uh, the the quality of a good, for example, human capital. Uh, you know, human capital or you know, farm employees uh, employees and in any industry has really improved over time because of uh, more experience, uh, more experience, more 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 training, more education. Uh, that improves the quality of labor, uh, and, and so that positively uh, would it would impact the price of labor. And so that's how I think about cost push inflation. Uh, also, a very important type of inflation. Once we've had some inflation, is what they call built-in inflation, and we're getting some of this today. We're gonna uh, it, in today's environment. We're going to talk more about this later in uh, later in the podcast, but when individuals expect current inflation rates to continue in the future, we have built-in inflation going on. Think about think about a wage uh, negotiations. If we've had 5% inflation recently, that's going to be an important part of the negotiating process in next year's wage contract. And so that's what I mean by built-in inflation. And so I really think demand-pull inflation, uh, where we have this uh, increase in the money supply that, that's, uh, that's increased demand uh, uh, more than the productive capacity and this built-in inflation is, is one of the main reasons why we're seeing, or two of the main reasons why we're seeing this recent surge in inflation. So, Michael, I would, I would disagree a little bit with your terminology, not necessarily with the scenario that you laid out there, but when I think of inflation, 
it's really about the money supply, stimulating the demand in the economy beyond the increase in productive yes. capacity, as, as you mentioned. And then I would argue the cost push and the built-in aspects that you mentioned, those are real, but they're really a reflection or a, tr uh, a movement through the economy that was originally caused by that increase in the monetary base uh, and, and to some extent fiscal policy, which injects more uh, uh, increases the monetary base as well. Uh, yeah, we don't disagree that much. I think the demand pull is the major driver. That's the driver. The other two are really kind of follow-ups. Results, perhaps, yeah. of the demand yeah, pull Yeah, results that, that kind of trickle through the economy over time and, and maybe continue to exacerbate the problem. But they're not the underlying problem. And I think that's a kind of important point because when I think about some of the rhetoric that's taken place, particularly in uh, uh, legislative arenas, they've tended to f focus on things like cost push. The real problem is the first cause, which is the demand pull created as a result of the monetary uh, stimulus that took place, right? So uh, I think that could create some confusion from a policy standpoint. Brady, what do you think? Yeah, and, and just to clarify, I think a, a good example of this is if you think about what happened during COVID um, and the stimulus packages that went through, obviously there was a sharp increase in spending, uh, namely on platforms such as Amazon and um, other delivery services. This created a backlog of shipping around the world. Uh, we heard stories of boats being docked outside the LA port for two to three weeks. Obviously that raised the cost of shipping across the oceans um, around the world. And, uh, and that was really a direct result of the demand pull. We were ordering more. We weren't going to shopping centers to uh, purchase it. We were going through online delivery services. I realized in some instances that those packages still have to get shipped across there, but it, it, it stuffed certain channels that increased some of those supply chains, the cost of getting those goods around the world. So that cost push was a direct, in my mind, was a direct impact or direct result of the demand pull inflation. Yeah, I think that's a good point and a good way to look at it as well. Um, so if you think about it, you know, we were looking at uh, some uh, literature here, I guess, earlier today, and it was interesting to me as I was kind of leafing through, uh, on, online anyway, some older issues of The Economist magazine. And I ran across an article that they published back in April of 2013, and the title of the article was The Death of Inflation. And I thought it was particularly relevant here nine years later to think about, well, what, what's, what's the change here a little bit? And the article did a nice job of explaining uh, what happened in the 1970s and how that differed in two major economies, uh, the American economy versus the German economy. And this is really based on some, some um, uh, study by the IMF, the International Monetary Federation. Um, and essentially what they looked at was how the central banks in the U.S., versus Germany responded to an increase in inflation in the 1970s. Uh, the German Central Bank, the Bundesbank, uh, did not accommodate what was taking place by having a very stimulative monetary policy, whereas the Fed in the U.S. continued to have a pretty uh, stimulative, a pretty loose uh, monetary policy in the 1970s and actually exacerbated the problem. And so by the time the late 70s came along, uh, we were looking at double-digit inflation rates. And finally, there was enough concern uh, among the general population to maybe make inflation enemy number one, I guess is a good, good way to think of it. Um, and that really is what happened when, uh, when Paul Volcker became chairman of the Fed. And it was pretty clear that his job as chairman of the Fed was to reduce the inflation rate. And 
he knew, and a lot of other economists knew, when he was given that license to do that, it was going to be painful. And a lot of our listeners remember all too well what happened in the 1980s. We had high inflation rates. We stamped it out with high interest rates, very high interest rates. Uh, and in particular, agriculture really suffered from those high interest rates. So that was a big challenge going forward. So let's think about what's going on now, right? Let's think about that was that was kind of the explanation for what happened in the 70s and a little bit of the early 80s uh, as we as we move through. Um, where are we at now? And you know, Michael, uh, you know, one of the challenges we've got now is how high do we have to raise interest rates to reduce the inflation rate? Yes, and this problem is 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 is, is problematic for 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 two reasons. First of all, we've kept interest rates very very low uh, since 2008 uh, because because we're worried about the economy, uh, and 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 so we've and so we've got interest rates that I would claim that some people would argue artificially low. And what I mean by that is they're below an equilibrium interest rate, if you will, and so they they're they're artificially lower, but lower lower than this equal long term. Term equilibrium interest rate, and so in some essence, we need to increase it up to that natural rate or that equilibrium rate, and then probably if inflation remains relatively high, we're going to need to boost it even even more to get above inflation. Uh, and so you start adding all those those adding that up, uh, and and you're talking some uh, potential for some pretty large increases in interest rates. And that creates a, an accompanying set of problems, right? Definitely. So, you know, if you think about the extraordinarily low interest rates we've had now for a number of years, really going back to the recession, the, the uh, 2009 uh, uh, timeframe in the recession, what it's allowed governments to do is to have these very large deficits because they could finance them with very, very low interest rates. Um, Low interest rates are always positive for asset values, right? Unambiguously, when you think about a model of asset prices, low interest rates prop up those asset prices. And we've seen that with things like, in recent years, the rise in housing values. Uh, longer term, we've seen it with respect to stock prices, right? The stock market has been stimulated by these low interest rates. Um, farmland. Farmland has benefited from that in terms of boosting values. So this really creates a challenge going forward, right? Because if you start increasing interest rates along the lines of what you've just outlined, Michael, uh, it's going to have a negative impact on asset prices, right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about if you're going to buy a house, right, the higher the interest rate, the higher your monthly mortgage is. So uh, as interest rates increase, it directly impacts the my purchasing power as a consumer of a house and means that I can now afford less, which is going to put downward pressure um, on housing values, right? You now have a large part of the population. If you're buying a house with a mortgage, I can now afford less of a house because my monthly payment's going to be higher with that higher interest rate. And when you think of that from a marketing uh, market levels standpoint, uh, one way to look at that is to say for a given house price level, fewer people can now afford that particular price house, right? And that pulls back that demand pull inflation that Michael was talking about earlier that curbs that. Um, and also the other impacts, if you think about how interest rates curb inflation, right? Uh, you know, interest rates may have to rise to sharp uh, to sharply fight combat this inflation. The other thing that interest rates does is it encourages all of us as consumers to keep our money in the bank, 
right? As interest rates increase, so does the money we're getting on our checkable deposits. So does the stock market has to respond as well, right? The required rate of return to put our money in that stock market has to go up and it encourages people to spend less in the material goods market and keep it invested, which slows down what we call the velocity of money, which is how quickly money changes hand in the uh, economy. And that in turn slows down inflation as well. So, you know, if you think about it, Michael, this kind of gets at this idea of why it's important to have a measure of inflation that's pretty accurate, right? When you start thinking about having to raise interest rates above the inflation rate, it behooves you to have a pretty good grip on what the true inflation rate is, right? Definitely, because as we indicated before, there was two, three percentage differences in some of those rates. Uh, even the PC and CPI now, I think it's at least a percent and a half, if not two percent difference. Well, that's a big, that's a big amount. Uh, if you have to increase the rates two percent more, uh, if you're using that higher inflation rate. Yeah, so that's one of the challenges the Fed has is to get a grip on what the inflation rate is versus the impact of price changes because of a variety of things like some of the disruptions we've talked about. So that that continues to be one of the issues. So I think you have to be a little careful about, say, for example, and I think some of our listeners might have been taking uh, this most recent CPI rate and added a couple of points to it and thinking that's how higher interest rates are going to go. I'm not sure I'd go that far because I'm not convinced at this point that the inflation rate is as high as what the CPI, for example, was shown this most recent reading. But it does suggest an upward trajectory on interest rates. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, interest rates are going to increase. And, and I just do want to latch on to something you just said, Jim, is that, you know, you think that the uh, CPI, you know, may not be as reflective as, uh, you know, that 8.51% may not be as high. Uh, one thing I want to remind the listeners is that this is an aggregate measure. So I hear a lot and see a lot on social media of, well, if you look at gas prices or if you look at one particular measure, uh, you know, without a doubt, and we're going to go through some of the important farm inputs and how much they've increased from uh, over the past year. If you take any one particular good, it may be possible that it's increased 100, 200%, but also keep in mind over this, even though we've had some pretty steep inflation numbers over the past year, there's actually some things that have decreased in price, right? Due to technology, um, or if you think about like the travel sector, airplanes and stuff like that, uh, you know, less people are traveling, so less demand there. So they, prices have kind of rebound now, but for a, a portion, a good part of uh, 2021 or, you know, end of 2021 here at the beginning of 2022, there were certain items such as cruise ships per se, where they were practically giving their product away for free because the demand had decreased. So keep in mind, this is an aggregate measure. So while some stuff may have increased 300%, there's some stuff that may have decreased over this t time frame. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So, you know, one of the things that I think uh, economists like to worry about uh, and, and others are going to worry about it down the road is um, if we boost interest rates a couple of points above the inflation rate, and if the inflation rate is in the ballpark of 5%, which is what several of the measures would suggest, CPI is higher than that at the moment, but some of those core measures are closer to that 5% mark, it's difficult to reduce or tamp down the inflation rate without causing a recession. Um, I think the last time America's inflation rate fell from over a 5% rate without a downturn was over 70 years ago. So 
if we really do have inflation at 5% or so, or maybe a little above 5%, and we really want to pull back on it, it's going to be tough. That's why the Fed is, 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 is purposely choosing to do this in very slow fashion to see if that can tamper down, tampen down inflation. Uh, they're probably going to have to pick it up a little bit if it doesn't. So they're in a, they're in a tight spot. But that's why they're, they're, they're thinking gradual increases in, inflation, uh, in interest rates. Yeah. So you mentioned this earlier, Michael. I thought it was interesting to go and look at the University of Michigan's uh, Consumer Sentiment Survey. One of the things they do is ask consumers what they expect to see in the inflation rate over the next 12 months, over the next year, and also over the next five years. And when you look at the readings over the last year that they've been getting, consumers have consistently been bumping up their expectation for inflation. A year ago, they were expecting inflation to be 3.4%. On the most recent survey here, April 22, 5.4%. Uh, so that's exactly what you were talking about earlier, right? As people build in those inflationary expectations, it becomes more and more difficult to push inflation out of the economy. Is that, do you agree with that? Yeah, and it makes it more difficult to plan too. Let's go a little bit more to the producer level, the ag economy barometer. Uh, we've seen by asking questions related to input price changes that they've increased, they increased the percentage, the expected percentage, uh, in, uh, that they're, the percentage that they're expecting input prices to increase here in the last several months. And so that makes more difficult to plan uh, if you're a business. Uh, there's more, usually when you have higher inflation rates, you have more volatility. Uh, and so I want to get to the, uh, to, you know, get to that aspect of, of high inflation is it's just really difficult to make enterprise decisions, to make capital investment decisions when you have a high inflation, uh, particularly if inflation's volatile uh, environment. And historically, high rates are associated with volatility. Yes. Right. All right. So I think for some of our listeners, you know, when we talk about things like the federal funds rate, that's maybe not a number a lot of us are, are acclimated to thinking about. I thought it was useful to just go back and look at what's going on with mortgage rates. So uh, if you look at the rate on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, uh, the most recent number, and this is kind of a headline number here in the last week or so, um, that rate has hit 5%. That's the first time that a uh, 30-year mortgage rate has been that high since May of 2010. So that's 12 years ago. Uh, to put that in perspective, for some of our older listeners that, like I am, remember uh, those peak mortgage rates back in the 80s, uh, there was a time in the 80s when we had mortgage rates for 30 years uh, above 18%. That's almost hard to believe uh, in the current environment. Uh, we were talking before uh, the, the podcast here, uh, some of us remember buying houses over time. I remember the first house I bought, the mortgage rate was 9.6%. Michael, you... Uh, At least 8%. And, and Brady's a little younger, so his is not quite so high. Yeah, mine was 4.2%. Boy, that sounds pretty good, actually. <laughs> <laughs> sounds really good. I would, have, I would have loved to have that 4.2 when I was paying 9.6, but anyway... Uh, things have changed a lot, and that's had a big impact on what people can afford and, and, and uh, the impact on housing yeah, prices as well. That's one thing, you know, I guess I'll just make a quick point here is that I've heard a lot of, uh, you know, I don't want to call it dire, but fairly negative attention paid to some of these interest rates of how are people going to afford stuff. And, and I do just want to say, you know, historically speaking, if you look at a 30-year average, we're still below the 30-year, you know, mortgage uh, you know, what the average was over the past 30 years. So even though we're at 5%, 
I, I think what we need to pay attention to is what we're really honing in on here is where's this going to go, right? And the answer that I have is I don't know. Maybe you guys have a, a you know the, the golden answer to where mortgage rates are going to be in two to three years. That that's really I think what the concern is here. Five percent is still pretty cheap when you, if you think about it from a historical perspective of what where interest rates have been. Uh, I, I tend to agree with that, and it's, I think, my own experience. This always happens with people. You're colored by what happens early in your career. And, and you know, my memory of those 18% mortgages, the, my memory of that 9.6% mortgage that I had at one point in time, colors my judgment, right? And so when I look at current rates, it's, yeah, we've had a big increase, but relative to those historical rates, it's still not too bad. That does beg the issue, and we've been getting this question from some producers here lately, Michael. Um, you know, if you're in a farm situation, should you refinance? We've been talking about that for a number of years and encouraged people to lock in long-term rates that we thought were pretty attractive. I feel, I feel pretty good about that advice over the last few years. Some people wondered about it because uh, in the short run, we weren't always right because rates continued to decline. What would you do today? Well, I, I want to answer that in a couple different ways. Maybe answer it a little, uh, little indirectly. Kind of one hand, another hand. Kind yeah, of <laughs> I'm gonna go back to what Brady was saying. Another thing to keep in mind here is the current period that we've just lived through, where the where the mortgage rates were down to 2.5 percent. That's the outlier. That's the abnormally low uh, interest rate. That's not something we would expect to to see for the next 30 years. And so and so don't expect that to uh, to, to us return to that anytime soon. Uh, can we live with five percent? Probably, uh, but what what we've been talking about earlier here, I don't think it's going to stay at five percent. Uh, I think it's I think it's going to uh, continue to climb and and perhaps get up there to six seven percent at least. And then it goes back directly to answer the question you were asking. I think there's a very good chance that we could see a two percent plus uh, increase in long term interest rates uh, for, for in agriculture. And and so uh, and, and so yeah, you should try to lock in some long term interest rates if you haven't done so. Even though they're they're slightly higher now than they were. A year ago, it still might be attractive to lock in some interest rates. That kind of matches my expectation as well. So, what, what about you, Brady? Let's get the third vote. So, I would agree. Um, I don't think we're going to return to 2.5% interest rate uh, anytime in the near future. Yeah, I would. I would take that a little farther. Anytime in the foreseeable future. <laughs> uh, and it, you know, if you're if you're on the bubble, you're, you've been thinking about uh, doing some refinancing or locking in a, a longer term rate. Uh, I don't think it's too late. It's obviously, you know, you can look at a chart and say, I should have done it six months ago. But uh, I think there's definitely some upside risk to these rates. And so that's very serious consideration. And so speaking of that, Brady, you've taken a look at this. Uh, they have the so-called dot plot. You might first start off by explaining to us what the dot plot is. Uh, so let me actually first start with what the Fed funds rate is, because I just want to make sure there's no confusion here. So the Fed funds rate is not the the interest rates that we were just talking about was the interest rate. If you went to a bank to get a house or a mortgage, um, what you would the rate you would get charged. The Fed funds rate, while it is technically an interest rate, it's the rate, uh, it's all, also called the overnight rate. Uh, the rate at which the Fed loans out money to banks or banks loan each other money on an overnight uh, basis. Okay. While this doesn't exactly tracked interest rates, right? Uh, this is not, banks don't necessarily set their interest rate off of the Fed funds rate. It is a major component of that. One of the main uh, 
figures or one of the main items that a lot of banks uh, look at is what is called the spread over cost of funds, right? So it's the spread over what they're charging their customers, the interest rate for the mortgages and loans that they're lending out relative to what the cost their funds um, cost the bank to get. Uh, sometimes this is a mix of, if you think about the checkable, checkable deposits, if you put money in a savings account, uh, you're getting an interest rate on that. Uh, but a lot of times we use the Fed funds rate as the cost of funds, because if they have to go out and get more money uh, from the Feds, this is what it, it's costing them. And if you look at, you know, we mentioned a little bit about the Fed is going to do this in a gradual stair-step motion. Um, that's historically what they've done. They've increased it 25 to 50 basis points at a time, or if you think 25 basis points is equivalent uh, to a quarter of a percentage uh, of an interest rate, right? Uh, that's what they have historically tried to have done. They don't want to come in and just shock the economy, okay? Um, but for if you, we, we've mentioned several times this extraordinarily low interest rate environment. If you look at where the Fed funds rate has been over the past 10 years, more often than not, it's going to be at what we call the zero lower bound, which means that we can't take it any lower, right, without making it negative, which I, I assure you the Fed does not want to make the Fed funds rate negative, right? Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, I think a big component of, of where we can see interest rates headed. Now, the dot plot, you asked what the dot plot is. Uh, the FOMC Board of Governors, which is made up of um, a voting committee of the heads of the Federal Reserve districts and some other policymakers, every uh, time they meet, they survey uh, the FOMC Open Market Committee on where they think um, the Fed funds rate is going in, in the near future. So one year from now, two years from now, three years from now, and then they ask a longer term. Uh, the dot plot represents the median of each person on the FOMC committee, where they think it'll be at that time frame. And as, as you can see from the dot plot, if you look in 2024, right, the, the median guess is right there around 3%. Uh, to four percent, but there are people on the FOMC committee that think that the average guess would be around, you know, four percent or or north of there, right? So that means it they could, in some scenarios, they're saying that it could be way higher than that. That's the, their average guess. So let's back up for a second. If we look at the current uh, federal funds rate, uh, they've raised it here recently. It's still less than a half a percent, right? Yes. So we're looking at the potential to see the federal funds rate move from less than half a percent to go into three and a half? Yep, over the next three years. So a three-point move, and that would probably translate, this is kind of putting you on the spot a little bit, but if I think about things like mortgage rates... Well, we looked at the 30-year the fixed mortgage was right around, you know, it got up to 5%. If you think about that spread, that means mortgage rates, uh, you know, if we go up to 4% on the Fed funds rate, add in that spread of, of 4 or 5%, you know, that, that puts us right around 9 10%. Certainly above 8%, right? Yes. And obviously, there's a lot of factors that play into that market demand, the risk profile of the, of the economy at the time frame. So the, the spread is not constant. But if you, if you take a very ceteris paribus, you know, all things equal assumption and apply the spread to what they're expecting, yeah, it puts you in that 8 to 10% range.
Uh, I don't. I want to serve the 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 uh, purpose or serve the serve the role as Chicken Little here, but uh, I think there's also more upside than what we're talking about here. I don't think the people that are on that board necessarily think inflation is going to stay at seven eight percent either, and so inflation does stay relatively high. Uh, the interest rates we were just talking about would have to would have to be even higher. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I do I don't want to be. I don't want to uh, you know spread fear out there, uh, but there's a lot of uncertainty right now with where inflation's heading, and that's what makes this really difficult uh, for, the Fed, for the Fed board to figure this out. Yeah, so one thing to keep in mind here, uh, and this is not a criticism of the Fed board, but you do have to think about their position and where they're coming from. The last thing that they want to do when they release their reports is incite fear. Uh, so I'm not saying that you can take that dot plot and say, okay, this is um, on the low end, but I, I do think that it is a very conservative estimate uh, of that committee. So just for a little bit of history, uh, it hasn't been too long ago that the federal funds rate was just shy of 2.5. So the idea that it would go to three, three and a half, four percent is not unrealistic at all. Uh, we could probably, under kind of a normal scenario, kind of expect that to happen. I think the biggest concern, this is kind of the, raise, the point you're raising, Michael, is whether or not we're going to raise it above that level. And they were at 2.5% when the inflation rate was relatively low. That was to try to norm, make it more uh, normalize uh, the rate uh, coming out of the 2008-2009 recession. Uh, and I think they would have continued to increase that Fed fund rate uh, past 2.5 if COVID went ahead. And so that and so that, that was part of that normalization process. They they stopped that process primarily because of COVID. Uh, you know, the big hit to the economy of COVID uh, you know, caused a situation where they thought they really needed to decrease that uh, that Fed funds rate. All right, let's talk a little bit more about specifically the impact on the ag sector. And uh, you mentioned this earlier, Michael. We've been asking people in the farm econ or ag economy barometer about uh, input price changes, and we've been getting back some some pretty horrendous uh, increases. numbers. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about inflation and farm input prices. Well, first of all, it's very important to note that uh, uh, input prices in, in production agriculture and every industry uh, in the economy are partially due to general inflation. So they do follow general inflation to some extent. But we all know that every input price market, i.e. anhydrous ammonia, for example, has its own supply and demand fundamentals that also impact the price for that input. Uh, and so, and so uh, there's a difference between general inflation movements, as we've said earlier, and and uh, change in uh, input price for one particular input. And so keep that in mind. But ha having said that, some inputs are more closely aligned or correlated with general inflation. So let's talk about that first before we talk about recent changes uh, in input prices. And so I looked at a uh, long-term relationship between uh, the implicit price deflator for personal consumption expenditures, uh, my measure of general inflation, and agriculture production item input price index from USDA NAS uh, over the 1973 to 2021 period. Uh, what did I find? Uh, well, the PCE and agriculture production items very broadly defined, this would represent um, uh, most of the production inputs in agriculture, was, was had a correlation coefficient of 0.6. That's highly correlated. So they certainly don't follow one-to-one -one by any means. Uh, there is some fundamentals specific to the agriculture industry, but they're highly correlated. Uh, talking about this further, uh, two inputs in particular that are high, highly correlated with general inflation are wages, 
that's not unexpected. Uh, wages tend to be very correlated with uh, with general inflation. In fact, uh, you, in some industries, uh, general inflation is used to negotiate uh, wages. Uh, if unions, for example, is the case. Also, uh, Social Security recipients, so a big chunk of their increase is related to to inflation. And so, and, and, and so that, that link is not surprising. One that may surprise people is there's also a strong relationship between uh, general inflation and machinery. Uh, so that's also highly correlated. Fuels tend to be high, fairly highly correlated uh, with inflation, not as high as labor, machinery, but also uh, relatively uh, correlated with general inflation. When you get into things like feed, seed, fertilizer, uh, repair, you know, uh, not necessarily repairs, but uh, agriculture, chemicals, the correlation is, is still there. There's still a correlation between general inflation and these the uh, feed, seed, fertilizer, uh, and agriculture chemicals, but it's lower. Uh, and uh, the reason for that is the seed industry has unique factors that impact the seed seed prices. Same with the fertilizer industry. For example, the fertilizer industry, uh, you know, is uh, highly correlated with corn and natural gas prices, and so those those are very important uh, to, to to setting fertilizer prices. Uh, I don't. I'm not saying as is important, but they're they're but they're important uh, in addition to general inflation uh, when you're looking at the fertilizer market. So, Michael, when I look at those correlations that you've identified, in a way, it's really no big surprise that labor and machinery were the two highest, right? You'd expect that in a way because clearly the general economy is going to have a big impact on what you're going to have to pay for labor on the farm. Uh, and also for yeah. machinery. And I didn't look at building materials specifically, but it would be the same as those two. Yeah, you would expect that anyway. Okay. So let's talk about the recent trends because the recent trends yes. are kind of wild. And this is what we're picking up in the ag economy barometer, very large expected increases in input prices. They're looking at these recent increases. And so let's take a look at this. Uh, to get the, when I talk about recent changes, I'm looking at February uh, 2020 to February 2021. I have information for some of the inputs uh, in March 2021, not for, but not for all of them. So I'm using February uh, 2021 uh, as the ending period. And that's important because the inflation in March of 2021 was high, uh, to say the least. And so using, using the last 12 months, ending in February 2021, uh, it ranges all the way from 0.2% for seed, that's a USDA NAS input price uh, change of 0.2% for seed, only 2.3% for wages, all the way up to 179% for anhydrous ammonia and 107% potash. A 100% change would be a doubling. And so obviously anhydrous ammonia and potash have more than doubled uh, in, the, in, the latest, in the latest 12 months. And if you talk to producers, <laughs> that's the first thing they'll talk about is the very high uh, fertilizer prices. Also, uh, uh, phosphorus, 1846-0, is also increased rather dramatically, about 51%. Diesel, 47%. Uh, if you include March uh, 2021 in the diesel, that would probably increase to 65-70% because March 21, we had a large increase uh, in diesel prices. But but the, the bottom line here is if you look at all production items uh, used in production agriculture, kind of an aggregate input price index, uh, the percent change is 15.6%. Uh, um, uh, compared to a PCA implicit price deflator, a rate of change of 6.4%. And so the rate of change has been higher uh, in agriculture than it has been in the general economy. Uh, that's not 
that's not particularly surprising. Uh, uh, input prices for a specific industry like agriculture tend to be more volatile uh, than than they are uh, than they are for the in, for the general uh, in terms of general price inflation because so you know different inputs are impacted different items are impacting uh, inflation in agriculture compared to PCE. Uh, why is agriculture so high? Well, I talked about the, the the very large increases in fertilizer and fuel prices, but also agriculture chemicals, machinery, building materials. All of these have increased at pretty rapid rates, uh, contributing to that relatively high uh, a change in, in in the input price for for agriculture production items. So the interesting thing about this, to me, Michael, aside from the, the big increases of some of those items you mentioned, is the fact that. Uh, there's only a couple of items on the list that you've got here that increased at a rate that was less than the PCE deflator, and those happened to be seed, as you mentioned, and wages. And, and wages. Um, the rest of them were all higher. And I, as you look at it sector by sector, you can understand what was taking place there, but it's had a big, big impact on production cost and uh, has left a lot of people worried about what's going to happen not only in 2022, but when as you and I visit with producers, uh, a lot of people are starting to talk about what's going to happen in 23. Uh, and I do not have the answer for what's going to happen past past 22. But one thing I one thing I do worry about a lot is is something we've talked about a couple times in this podcast. When you have high inflation, you have high volatility, and so it's a real concern uh, that that these that the, some of these input prices changes that we've seen uh, recently are going to still persist uh, into 23. At least the levels are going to persist uh, into 23. It's a it's a real worry. We'll have a little more information on this going forward when we get the results from the next Ag Economy Barometer Survey because we put a question on there that asked people what they think is going to happen in 23 relative to 22, and it'll be the first time we ask that question. So let's kind of wrap this up and, and talk about some of the impacts. And uh, Brady, you've given this some consideration, so I'll turn it to you. Yeah, if, I, if, I, if I'm going to summarize kind of our discussion here that we've had on this podcast, you know, really you have two countervailing uh, headwinds here, right? Inflation is is making things every you know everything more expensive, right? The PCE is up 6.4 percent. The Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, their CPI is 8.51. Obviously, at production ag, uh, Michael said is around 15 percent increase. Uh, but now you have the Federal Reserve coming in, uh, banks coming in, interest rates put downward pressure on these asset prices. Uh, you know, we don't have the crystal ball here to know how high interest rates are going to go. We know they're going to go up from where they are to combat this increase of, of inflation. Uh, but an increase of interest rates puts downward pressure on these asset prices. Um, you know, I, I think from someone who studies finance, uh, these headwinds tend to impact what I call the tails of the distribution the, the most, right? The people that are already maybe credit constrained, uh, the farmers or, or consumers uh, that may already be struggling to, to pay the, the mortgage, right? Uh, one thing that I do want to point out that is different from the 1980s is that banks have increased liquidity. All, uh, and I'm speaking specifically here to the agricultural banks, but if you look at the Kansas City Ag Finance data book and the data that they publish, um, the loan to deposit ratio, which is the amount of loans that the banks have outstanding relative to the amount of deposits they have at the bank, has decreased here over the past year or so. 
right? So banks are pretty well positioned to weather this. If we do get into um, you know, some liquidity concerns in the agricultural sector. And the other thing is, is that we see increased liquidity in the ag sector from a farm balance sheet perspective. Um, this is shown up in the demand for loans at ag banks has decreased, which indicates that farmers have more money on hand uh, and have thus, when they go to the bank to ask for loans, are asking for less amounts of money. To me, this is going to be really interesting to see how these countervailing pressures, i.e. The, the, the inflation and interest rates, plays out and, and shows up in the liquidity, the bank liquidity, and the, the farm liquidity here over the next two to three years. The good news, Brady, is is the balance, the farm balance sheet is really pretty solid. Yeah, we've got we've got we've got good asset values right now, and so even some uh, downward pressure on land values, if it doesn't decrease too much, uh, we're still looking at a very solid balance sheet. Also, liquidity, uh, our working capital is is really solid right now compared to what it was even in 2019. The last two years have, have really built up working capital, and so we're starting at a pretty good point. I'm still really worried about inflation, inflation volatility in the next two to three years, but at least we're starting uh, at, a, at a pretty solid balance sheet. Yeah, um, but but again, Michael, that goes back to my point is that the tails drive the distribution. Yes. If you think no, about the 1980s, and I realize that the banking structure, both from a regulatory standpoint and bank structure, because we've had a lot of consolidation in the finance sector, is a lot different. Because what we saw in the 1980s was, uh, you know, all it took was one or two farmers in a bank's territory to declare bankruptcy. And all of a sudden, the bank was having to tell farmers that, normally they would be more than willing to lend money out to because the bank was liquidity and capital constrained. Those farmers were now facing a constraint and it was like a snowball effect, right? And that's what we don't want to see happen. I think that's why there's so much fear out there is we don't want that snowball, that, that, that snowball to start rolling down the mountain and someone who is credit worthy all of a sudden isn't because of some of these factors. Yeah, and, and there and there's still like you said, there is some there is some individuals with very high debt to asset ratios, fairly low incomes, even in these good time, fairly good times that we've seen in 2020. And that's what you worry about is is that group gets larger uh, as we go through these real, relatively difficult times. And that's what makes measures like these so hard to predict one, two, three years out into the future is because a a lot of the measures that we've discussed here today are the average numbers. They're yes. not the tail distributions, the, the, the people on the fringe, um, or, or the data points on the fringe, I should, should say, which that's what makes it so hard to predict. So as you think about it, uh, you know, I think in a future podcast, we'll, we'll probably spend more time thinking about the impact on farmland values, but I think that's going to be one of the interesting questions, right? As interest rates uh, increase, what impact that is going to have on farmland values and Obviously, it could be a, a trade-off between what's going on in the commodity markets versus what's taking place with interest rates, right? So we'll, we'll explore that in more detail in a future podcast. We'll look forward to maybe inviting one of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Todd Keithy, who uh, specializes in focusing on farmland values. So with that, I'm going to wrap this, uh, this podcast up. So uh, on behalf of my colleagues, uh, Michael Langemeyer and Brady Brewer and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture. Thanks for listening. Um, I'm Jim Mintert and uh, look forward to visiting with you in a future podcast. Mm -hmm.